1: We welcome you to Butt Into It, where we talk computing, technology, the internet, uh, all of the fun stuff that um, uh, you want to, um, I guess, embrace on a Wednesday night. Um, tonight on the show, uh, behind the desk, we have uh, Dan Salmon. How are you, Dan?
2: I'm very well. How about yourself?
1: Doing pretty good. Uh, I'm inside. I'm warm. Uh, I'm ready to have some good chats. Um, uh, also, we have Rowena Murray. How are you?
0: Good evening, everyone. How's it going? Um,
1: How's has technology been for you this week, Ro? Is it um, working for you, working against you?
0: Yeah, it's mostly working for me. I have actually uh, kicked off NBN. My NBN got installed late last week, so um, it's a massive improvement. I'm almost too scared to say anything and put the mods on myself, but so far so good. It has been way better than what I had before, so I've actually been enjoying the old technological side of life a little bit.
2: Amazing. How about yourself? Yeah. Oh, look, no, nothing as exciting as uh, the NBN. I'm just uh, happy that my um, Zoom calls at work are managing to kind of, you know, go well. Um, that, that's, that's that's more or less it. I mean, you know, in in these days of uh, remote working, really just being able to see and hear people is um, is kind of a plus. But I, I, I got to say, I'm just so excited for you, Ro, about the NBN. Only 15 years after they started building it.
0: I know, right?
1: <laughs> um, it should be a, a, a good show tonight. We've got um, a bunch of great chats that we're very excited to uh, to have and uh, and share with you. Um, uh, in a little while, we're going to be talking um, about uh, machine learning and um, uh, great enterprise uh, machine dreams. Um, which is exploring uh, detecting the undetectable, um, which is uh, very mysterious and curious, but um, we're going to go with that. Um, So stick around for that in a few minutes' time. Uh, Toby is going to have a chat to us. Um, We're also going to have a bit of a uh, a conversation about um, the 2.5 million Australians who aren't online and what the current situation uh, may mean for them. Um, There's been some uh, interesting, um, uh, I guess, conversations uh, happening around that. Um, And Dr Chris Wilson, will join us to to explain a little bit about um, what's going on for, for um, people who aren't online and um, considering that's where a lot of us are, are meeting and um, learning and doing business and um, sharing ideas um, it's important we understand that a little bit better but um, before we get into those chats we do have um, some news that we wanted to talk through and Ro there's been um, obviously one of the big conversations including what's been going on uh, on our show has been um, the COVID Safe app, but there's been a few issues um, on iPhones apparently.
0: They have indeed, and obviously the, the Safe app is, you know, top of a lot of people's minds at the moment, and it's certainly at the top of a lot of uh, media broadcasts. Um, essentially, the federal government is keen for every Australian to have the app and, it, and is essentially saying this is going to be our flagship gateway item to reopen the country, so to speak. Um, but, you know, there, there are some issues. So um, if Australians, we've got 5.1 million Australians who are using the app at the moment, and while the Android version works, um, while the app is running in the background, for example, it's not open on the screen, you can just set it and forget. The iPhone version actually ain't that great. Um, the iPhones aren't necessarily recording all the data that's needed in order for it to work. If they don't have the app running in the foreground or... Or if they're using an older model iPhone. Um, and the government has come clean and admitted that today. Um, essentially, if you're on an iPhone and you've got the COVID Safe app, in order to collect all of the necessary Bluetooth pings and handshakes um you need the app open on the screen and the phone unlocked and obviously you know that's just a recipe for butt dialing really but um there are some <laughs> planned updates in the coming weeks that will hopefully resolve this so right now it's not a one but here's hoping they'll get it sorted soon
1: yeah and that's that'd be kind of 45 48 of, percent of phones yes, really huge proportion um, yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to call and tell my dad that he can't just walk around with it. He has to actually have it out and start waving it around.
2: It's it's exactly. it's interesting because on the on the app itself, it just says you just no further action is required. Like I'm I'm looking at it. I have an iPhone and I'm looking mm. at it right now, and it says no further action is required. Covid Safe is active, but as soon as I, you know, swipe away and do something else, it's not active anymore.
0: It's they, not.
2: They really need to think that through big mm. time did did, did did you guys receive the message uh the kind of forced text message from your providers mm. in the last couple of days to download it
0: yes mm. i've ignored two of them yeah
3: <laughs> fair enough it,
1: it's it's interesting I, I think the um the the kind of messaging around if you do this then you get that like if you download the app then we'll start to ease restrictions um kind of feels like you've got a uh not a gun to your head yeah. but it's, it's an uncomfortable situation hoster, i think um, situation. there's yeah i mean I, you know i can hear a lot a lot of people from our team kind of you know in my ear right now talking about this about sort of exchanging sort of um your privacy um for, you, for your information um and it is it is a difficult call i think we, we would all like to extend ourselves and and um do our best as as citizens to to kind of help um keep this under control and we, we've been okay at that um Either through a bit of luck or a bit of planning, but um, it seems a seems a hast- hastily rolled out idea. Um, Definitely heard on recent shows.
0: And especially because there are such uh, trust issues um, that that have existed in terms of um, the Australian government and its ability to actually roll out robust um, platforms that don't have big issues with them. And, um, you know, trust is obviously a really big factor. I'm sure most of us as, you know, sensible, concerned citizens would be absolutely willing to, you know, in theory, get the app and participate in, you know, closing down the spread of COVID-19 and playing that role. But um, it it feels very high risk as well.
1: Mm, Interesting. Um, uh, Another piece of news that um, did um, catch my eye um, uh, over the past couple of days um, McKinsey, uh, or as um, I did see them described on Twitter the other week, the Soft Touch Pinkertons, um, have been uh, awarded a three month uh, MyGov deal to, um, I guess, develop a business case uh, for the uh, Facebook inspired MyGov update um, over the next few months. Um, uh, we did. Pick this up um, on Innovation Oz. there's a story about um, MyGov, which is basically a, a service hub for a lot of government services. Um, uh, if you use, you know, uh, Medicare or um, uh, Centrelink or, or a bunch of those different services, you'd be pretty familiar with the, the portal. Um, the new, uh, in quotation marks here, digital experience platform, uh, Gov, DPX or DXP, um, they're trying to have something that resembles a social media platform, apparently, um, something with a a sort of smoother, more cohesive digital service for Australians to engage with government. Um, it's already kind of been carved up, the project, between a, a sort of a, a bunch of the, the sort of um, big we consulting firms like Deloitte and, um, and McKinsey. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, uh, a million bucks to kind of go in and figure out should we actually have this um, over a few months. Um, I don't know. I, I thought it kind of seemed like a, a pretty... Um, Initially, I, I did think it was um, they, were, they were hoping to do, like, an MVP for it um, in a few months. But um, I don't know. I think a business case, they should be able to put something together. I'm not sure if we need um, uh, uh, a million bucks to do that, though. seems like mm. uh, uh, fancy lunches um, up in Canberra.
0: <laughs> Highly likely.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing that was interesting, uh, Telstra is uh, having a bit of a play around with uh, SMS over Wi-Fi. What, what's going on there?
0: Yeah, so um, Telstra has quietly rolled out SMS over Wi-Fi and this is actually a a bit of a bigger deal than um, people often realise, uh, particularly for our regional um, and rural Australians. So um, essentially... um, Anyone who's been in, you know, a 4G or a 3G pothole hasn't been able to receive um, SMSs. And this had a really big impact during the bushfires. You know, there were a lot of instances over summer where people were, like, literally getting ready to leave. They were following all the instructions. They then evacuated and were halfway down the road, finally hit a 4G, you know, tower, and all of a sudden got a bunch of text messages saying that it's now too late to leave go back, hunker down. So um, this is a really big deal. um, But what's been interesting is the catalyst for finally doing it is um – our, our good old COVID Safe app so um, <laughs> in order to enable the um, two-factor authentication to activate the app um, regional and rural Australians have, have simply not been able to download it and fire it up properly because of this issue so Telstra has quietly been rolling out SMS over Wi-Fi, um, it's finally happening and it absolutely looks like the decision's been directly tied to the COVID Safe app so I guess it's a little bit of a Um, a subtle unexpected win for um, regional and rural communities, but it's also a prime, yet another prime case of what can, you know, be done, things that people have been asking for for a really long time. COVID-19 has, you know, thrown the hammer down and, and switched a lot of things on that people have been wanting for a long time.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a bit disappointing that it's taken such huge cataclysmic events for the market to finally be like, okay, let's do this. Like, if the technology mm. has been there, you know, and this is, again, you know, an arg- argument for, you know, regulation or the, the problem with market-driven economies is, you know, unless if it's going yes. to the cost them money and they don't see any tangible benefit to it, people essentially need to die in a bushfire or with a, you know, contagious disease for them to say, all right, let's 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 just switch that on, shall we? I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a bit annoyed, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Having grown That's up amazing. in a regional area.
0: Yep, totally agree. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
2: Uh, you're here with Warren, Dan, and
1: Rowena.
4: Warren. Hello. <laughs>
1: And we are now joined by uh, Toby Tremaine. Uh, Toby is a technical futurist, coder, hacker, writer, and uh, all-round troublemaker. Apparently, Um, I hope his mum is not aware of that. Um, With over 22 years' experience in building uh, big-picture software projects, and he has now turned his hand, uh, along with his partner, to machine dreams. Uh, Toby, thanks for getting under the doona with us on uh, Bite Into It tonight. Um, Thanks for having me. Machine dreams. Uh, where does where does the name come from? I, I'm very
3: curious to know. Um, it it comes from the fact that we we are creating synthetic imagery. So the the name itself is taken from "Do androids dream of electric sheep?" Very nerdy. Love it. Uh, but essentially, so what we're addressing the whole seeing the unseen thing is is, is using machine learning. Um, computer vision specifically to look at imagery and video of pretty much anything and detect patterns or detect uh, anomalies and defects. So a big example is uh, looking at endless photos of power poles to detect little defects in equipment before they become a, a big problem and cause a bushfire. Um, the issue with all of this and the reason you don't see a lot more of it being done is uh, it needs a lot of imagery, a lot of photographs to be able to teach the computer how to see one of these things in various conditions and lighting and um, you know detect defects. And in particular, no one has enough photos to, to generate complete uh, machine learning models to detect a lot of the different kinds of defects uh, that occur in these things. Anything from corrosion to physical damage to cracking. So we use video game technology to create digital twins, 3D models of the assets that we're looking at. And we use um, the the same technology to create sort of randomizable defects, whether it be rust or cracks in concrete or even physical deformations. We put all of that into a big simulator and we generate super high resolution synthetic photos that we can then use to train a machine learning model. So, where is the where
1: is the lack of uh, images coming from? Is it um, uh, is it not possible to sort of get out there with drones or, or kind of um, similar to um, sort of Google Google Street View cars? Just get out there and take a lot of photos, or it does it not really matter? You, you there, don't really there are need several that
3: kind issues. Of... There's a lot of data out there, but. Um, uh, to start with, a lot of it's not sort of easily um, brought together via various legal and political reasons. But mm. the the big issue is it's uh, a lot of it's just not sufficient. So if you're if you're really trying to teach a computer to spot something, um, uh, in all conditions, then you need uh, more photos of of particular kind of angles, um, lighting and weather conditions. When they get dirty, all these kinds of variants, different colors and uh, things like that, and and lots of different backgrounds. So, And some objects are harder for the computer to discern than others. So even we we work with a power company where they are looking after 400,000 distribution power poles. These are the poles on the side of your, your road. And... They fly helicopters over them to keep an eye on them, but it Mm. takes up to nine months to get through that many images, and that's just for those poles, and that's just a small part of their network. And those images, even though there are so many of them, they're not enough to train a machine learning model to be able to detect small defects on little pieces of the equipment on them so we just generate whatever needs generated at whatever sort of size and angle make lots and lots of sort of infinite variations and in conditions and teach the computer to spot it and then it can find that in uh, in real photos hmm so what are the most
1: kind of obvious uh, use cases for, for this kind of um, uh, technology who, who do you kind of um, plan to be working with or hope to be working with um, to, to make use of this
3: well it's a really interesting thing um the, it works pretty much across disciplines. If it can be simula- if it can be seen, it can be simulated. so it, it can work for anything from microscopy, um, you know looking at electronics or um, doing uh, you know, photographs of uh, microscopy in cells, um, mm. DNA scans, you could be looking at um, ore samples for mining to detect minerals. you can be detecting things using thermal and you know alternate um, spectroscopies. And then you can uh, obviously detect detect defects in all kinds of things. So um, there there are simple uses – well, they seem simple. There's an example where um, an engineering firm we've been working with, they help um, with compliance for shipping logs on trucks. There's a whole bunch of very strict rules about how you can ship them. Mm. Um, For example, um, depending on the nature of the load, you have to have a certain number of straps over the load. And if you're missing one, it can be a $3 million fine and up to five years in jail. Uh, and, you know, it's machine learning can, can look at that, look at people's business rules and go, all right, you're missing a strap, put it on. And and you can really easily put that into a system that doesn't require training or expertise, just apply what's happening in the real world. And that, that's really the trick. On the more complex end, you've got these big networks of um, you know, public infrastructure assets especially, they're, they're widespread, they're all over Australia, they're often dangerous to get close to or to take pictures of and you can't just pull them out of circulation. So in a lot of cases, we use whatever references we can get, we generate the, the photos we can, and then we're able to use any imagery that they can come up with, whether it's the normal reporting images or we help them get some drones together. And a lot of these utility companies are looking at pretty advanced um Situations now. I know some of the the companies that look after the sewers. They send these brilliant little rovers down the pipes that scan scan the pipes with imagery. Uh, so mm. we're working with to try and detect cracking in those pipes and and um, you know vegetation and things like that. So it can really be applied across the board.
0: It, it sounds like an incredibly exciting um, opportunity in the sense that, um, you know, machine learning is something that's, you know, literally, you know, moving forward in leaps and bounds and, uh, you know, as you mentioned in your, um, you know, in, in your introduction, that the, the big issue has been finding enough data and enough samples for it to truly learn and truly be effective. Um I I was kind of curious because um, you've mentioned on your website you've created the Machine Dreams simulation platform, which is called Morpheus, and it's combining that uh, video game technology um, with machine learning. And and my understanding is that's the really big leap forward and what Machine Dreams is doing differently. Is that correct?
3: I think so, yeah. Um, Really, what we're doing is using the technology people use for building games and virtual worlds to... Um, create uh, and sort of manage these environments. We, we create scenes with backdrops that might be a, a road or an urban street or just you know grassy outcrops or whatever is, is required for the kinds of reporting photos people are going to take. We make the assets and then the simulator mixes them all up, changes the lighting and the angles, can add things like dirt and corrosion, but then can swap in and out good def- uh, good assets for defective assets generate random cracks in things, those sorts of things. These are the the, the technologies we're developing. Um, so what it does is it just spits out everything that we need um, in order to feed into machine learning training. Um, outcomes comes a model. We test it and refine it, change a few settings and run it again. And it, it's that advantage of being able to create data where there is none um, and just using the, the things, the amazing tools that have already been developed in the game industry to do it.
0: Brilliant. And I was a bit curious, um, whereabouts did the name Morpheus come from? Is that a little bit of a Matrix reference or is it from elsewhere? It's
3: both. It's (laughs) – I I like it because it's a Matrix reference, but it's basically – Morpheus is also the god of dreams. Yeah. So it's more a Sandman reference than anything else.
1: (laughs) And um, I'm curious to know kind of – it it does say in your bio that you've kind of been doing a a lot of stuff prior to this. Was it – was there a a kind of – or a, a, an intuition that this would be a really interesting place to explore uh, in previous work? What, what was the kind of um, lead uh, into, to this?
3: I guess my, my thing since I was a kid, um, I've read a book about, you know, the, the firm f- Industrial Light and Magic? They do all the special effects for Star Wars and that kind mm. of thing. Mm-hmm. I read about it when I was little, and uh, I read about how they'd invented new technology just so they could tell a story the way they wanted to, and I thought that was really cool, but then... What really captured me was once they'd done it, they suddenly found they could do all these things that nobody could do and they hadn't planned for any of it. And it was that idea of putting different things together and making something new. This concept of something that emerges that you weren't planning for. So I build a lot across lots of different emerging technologies and, and kind of bang things together really hard until something new comes out. And I try and make tools and systems to help enable everybody else to do that. And I guess one of the things I wanted to do I couldn't do and I was annoyed, so I tried to make something that would let me do it. Um, and then I showed it to some clever people and it got a bit out of hand, so here we are. <laughs> and uh, what, what what kind of
1: excites, uh, excites you um, now, we, now that you've kind of got the the um, technology working, um, what kind of big problems would you like to throw uh, throw this at?
3: Oh, I'd really love to get involved in uh, in anything that, that sort of helps uh, helps people. You know, AI isn't really at all what the, the movies say it is. It's just a bunch of clever computer scripts. But we're getting clever enough now that we can help with everything from a sickness to, you know, just removing crappy work from people's lives and making things safer um, and preventing things like bushfires and power outages. I'd love to get in and really apply some, some bits and pieces that can make a big difference there
1: yeah I think that um, the the climate stuff's really interesting being able to kind of um, see something uh, ahead of time and then you know potentially help move resources around or, or kind of help people prepare um, oh, so you powerful.
0: know
3: it, yeah it, it feels like sort of warning systems are, are kind of too late um, in a way yeah I, I agree and you know my partner does amazing work with with um, uh, eDNA scanning and determining whether endangered creatures live in a certain area when you can't find them in other means, so we can protect the, the areas. And, you know, there's a lot of it can be done with machine learning in these fields. If you can get a little bit of funding, the, the sort of power of anything from detecting animals at night to watching vegetation encroach and detecting erosion, um, land encroachment, all of these sorts of things can be automated and made real.
2: Absolutely, to- Toby. Uh, it-, it sounds amazing, like the the way that you've uh, harnessed this technology. Um, thank you so much for making uh, time to talk to us tonight, um, Toby Tremaine uh, of Machine Dreams. Thanks a lot, mate.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks very much, everyone. Not a problem.
1: Triple R. Hey, uh, there is a there is a bug out there, and um, it has had a, a big impact on our lives um, for. Um, I don't know, I, I guess for the foreseeable future. And um, one of the organisations that is taking a look at that is the Centre for Social Impacts. Uh, they are a, uh, a national research and education centre dedicated to catalyzing social change for a better world. And they have been having a bit of a look at um, uh, the so-called uh, digital divide or there is a divide, um, that's the, uh, the catch all phrase for it. Uh, and Dr Chris Wilson of the centre now joins us uh, on bite into It tonight. Chris, thank you for making time to, to say hello.
4: Thanks very much for having me. Uh, It's great to be here. Uh,
1: So um, I I guess the the digital divide is a term that's that's been around for a a little while now, but for those who aren't familiar with it, what, what does that actually mean?
4: Okay. Yeah. So, look, um, I mean, the original kind of idea around the divide was really the divide between people who had um, internet access and those people who didn't have internet access. Um, it's become a little bit more complicated over time. Um, I mean, we know uh, in Australia that about two and a half million uh, Australians don't have, um, don't have, uh, or aren't users of the internet about one and a quarter million households don't have home-based access. Um, But that really is the tip of the iceberg. Um, The work we do um, sort of extends beyond just those people who are non-users and looks at what effective access means, what affordable access means. Uh, And then of course, really to be able to get the benefits of being online, uh, you really need to have the skills to do that. So the work we do uh, with the Australian Digital Inclusion Index looks at those sort of multiple variables and then tries to, to work out, you know, how we're tracking um, really in terms of not just access but, but all of those other aspects of, of what might make somebody um, digitally included and therefore getting the benefits uh, of being online.
2: And, and Chris, how were we tracking before the COVID-19 uh, pandemic started? Like how, how, how's the research been, been going up until that point?
4: Yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting question. Um, Look, um, I mean, overall, the level of digital inclusion in Australia has been improving, um, and that has largely been driven by improvements in access. Um, Of course, the NBN build out, um, although um, there has been, of course, issues around that, it has provided um, faster broadband um, on, on aggregate. Um, so that's been one aspect of of the sort of improvements is around around kind of improving the quality and, and of access and, and and data allowances, for instance, have gone up under under these new um, new plans as people have transitioned um, off off legacy um, legacy broadband plans and into the M B N space. So we've seen kind of really improvements there. Some mobile in, internet infrastructure as well has been rolled out. Um, in the affordability space, we've seen people getting more gigabytes per dollar, and I think we we, we can all see that in, in both the mobile and fixed space. Um, a real issue in the in the in the affordability um, space has been the fact that we've seen fairly stagnant wage growth, um, and and also fixed uh, fixed income um, pay- benefits and payment. Um, you know, those things haven't really gone up, and we of course see that telecommunications costs have gone up. So. In terms of pressure on household budgets, particularly for those low-income households, we've seen some issues. Um, so some sort of gains in the in the value for money, but some 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 pressures around um, around household budgets. Um, and in the digital skills space, um, we've seen some improvement, but um, but off a fairly low base. So we'd really like to see um, you know some 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 improvement there on aggregate across the population.
1: I'm interested to know, Chris, um, w- when when we say two and a half million Australians and and sort of sort of one and a quarter million households don't have access to the internet, what what kind of yep. fundamental differences in in lifestyle and and opportunity and uh, employment, what what does that really mean? Uh, I guess it's hard for hard for people to imagine. I had someone on my Twitter say, um, oh, it's it's hard to imagine when when we're online all the time." Could you could you sort of paint it in black and white for us?
4: Oh, absolutely, and I think you've I mean I think you've really nailed it there in many ways. I mean, it's hard to imagine when you're an internet user um, the, the the imposition upon your lifestyle when you are not a user, and I think we've seen particularly under these COVID nineteen containment um, you know conditions. We've seen all of these offline activities being transformed and pushed into the digital space. And they're things that you and I get to appreciate every day. And we can, we're can we getting the social benefits and the cultural benefits and the economic benefits of those things. Um, but for those people who don't have a home connection, and there's 1.25 million households without a home connection, um seventy six thousand around seventy six thousand uh, families with children under the age of fifteen. So think about that in the education world at the moment, um, the sort of mm. impact of that. Mm. I mean these are, I mean it's really it's very hard for for people who are online all the time to fathom um, just how you would survive in an offline world um, and an off- exclusively offline world. And what we know under the current circumstances, it's getting harder. The, the, the benefits of being online are are, are getting, you know, are, are rising and um, and the costs of being offline um, are also rising. So,
1: yeah, I think um, it's 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 kind of uh, easy to, easy to kind of picture that now um, when when you talk about. Um, the increasing divide um, as we, I guess, start to make changes and I I guess maybe as Australia starts to um, uh, uh, sort of loosen the social distancing practices in in the coming months. um, How is that likely to change what's been going on here and what you've observed so far?
4: Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I think it's it's, obviously things sometimes are a bit hard to predict, but Mm. um, we know a few things. Um, One is that the process of digital transformation of, of, of all sorts of government services, of commercial, um, commercial retail and services, social and cultural activities. We know that transformation has been an ongoing process, um, that COVID-19 has really accelerated. Um, so we re- expect that we won't see a wind windback um, of some of those things have been, that have been pushed into the digital space. We're unlikely to see them move back. Some of those practices and and activities move back into the offline space, um, or exclusively in the offline space at least. So we think there'll be sort of a continued um, transformation of of delivery um, from the from the other side of the equation, from the from the inequality side of things. Um, we suspect that there'll be some skill improvement, and we think that's a real positive. That you know those mm-hmm. people who are online. The COVID nineteen thing has really driven the need to, you know, update your skills. If you've, if you're an older user and you've only been doing things like email and maybe streaming television, you may have moved into, you know, um, video conferencing, for instance, to stay in touch with friends and family. Um, you may be getting into even some creative practice and distributing creative content online. So there may be some positives there for skills. Um, but we think there's going to be some real issues um, in terms of the downturn of the economy. We know that um, that that low income, um, you know, unemployment, um, moving out of the labour force, those things are really clearly uh, related to digital exclusion. So we really fear that there may be actually um, a, an expansion of the divide um, as we as we see this sort of. You know, economic downturn. So, some good news in terms of skills, and also some some issues around um, potentially the um, the downturn and the impact of that.
1: It, it seems interesting that um, I, I guess there's been a couple of things that have happened um, uh, for people who do have uh, good internet access where, you know, you can gorge on it, you can kind of uh, hit the streaming services, you could, uh, you know, take guitar lessons, you can do whatever you'd like. And then when you've had enough of that, you get square eyes, you can sort of, um, you know, um, become become a baker or, um, you know, go for a jog or, or what have you. So th- there are options. Um, is, is there a chance that sort of a, a multi-pronged approach might be needed I think if um, there's some structural uh, um, kind of work that we need to do around employment or learning or, or people who were in industries that that have been really hit hard such as you know hospitality or, or um, um, a lot of service industries like um, uh, the restaurant world and, and so forth Um do, do we need a kind of like a, a multi-pronged approach here? If if two and a half million Australians or, or maybe even more um, in coming months um, don't can't upskill, can't uh, retrain, can't do things online, which is uh, an easy way to deliver these things, do we need to? Do we need to go back to school? Do we all need to be sort of um, you know going down to the the sort of CWA halls and Scout halls for for retraining?
4: yeah look um look a coordinated approach in in terms of digital inclusion um, and, and, and addressing digital inequality is incredibly important um obviously it's not a new issue it's one that we've been um, discussing and, and working working on for for many years um of course this crisis has has um, generated a kind of um, immediate need for um, some actions and we've seen some of that the telcos and government mm-hmm. um, MBn have a lot of people stepping into that space a lot of the um, not-for-profit groups who are involved in digital training Um, and and provision of digital um, technology have also, um, you know, really, really been great at engaging um, in this space during the crisis. Mm. But um, we will need an ongoing coordinated approach in the the post-COVID world, I guess we'd call it. Um, Mm. And that will include or will have to involve um, training. It will have to um, involve um, trying to um, ensure that people get online, that they have effective um, access to technology, to the internet, um, so, yeah, a coordinated approach, which will undoubtedly involve um, government at all three levels. Um, you know, we can't forget the important role that things like local libraries play in the provision of a safety net in terms of internet access for many members of the community. So it really works from that local government level up through even um, state government, we know providing um, public Wi-Fi in certain places. Um, and then, of course, the federal government as a co- coordinating body. Wow. And we're gonna need all of those groups together. Um, but um, so, so, um, so we're gonna need those kind of government groups also working with telcos, um, not-for-profit mm. groups, um, people like the Good Things Foundation providing um, excellent um, opportunities for a network of training providers in the community. Um, as well, of course, as big tech perhaps as well. So the Googles and Facebooks of the world really should be involved in, as in part of this process. Uh, it is really, um, if we're shifting um, to to a kind of really more exclusive digital life, then we're going to make hmm. sure that we bring everybody along with us.
1: Well, what would be some of the initiatives if you were um, uh, parachuted into Canberra uh, or you know, local government uh, in central goldfields or, or wherever you are, um, what would be the two or three things that you would do to, to really help with digital inclusion? What, what are some easy things that could feasibly be done? Sure. Um, we won't hold you accountable to it, but, you know, <laughs> get the uh, no out and stick someone on the wall, yeah.
4: Look, I, I think probably, um, I think in the sort of access and affordability space, we need we need some affordable um, um, broadband products in the market and that is tough. Um, the MBN, um, the NBN model is, is, um, a difficult one. Um, I, I'm not sure what the future of, um, the commercialised MBN holds, but we need to think about how we're going to provide, um, you know, some lower cost, um, and, and affordable, um, fixed broadband into the marketplace. Um, I know that, um, People like um, ACAN, uh, the Australian uh, Communications Consumer Action Network, have been pushing for that for a long time. And we know that NBN are interested in that. So that's that's one, one issue that I think is, you know, affordable and effective access is very, very important. Um, I think at the local levels, you know, there is a real role for, for um, local councils. And I know that they're already playing part of this role, but in, in trying to get older people online in particular, um, you, you know if you look at who's who's offline of the 2.5 million 1.5 million of them are aged over 65 so um, and, and compare that <laughs> compare c- compare that the, the offline rate for that group is 45 percent for 25 to 34 year olds it's 2.2 percent so you know there's some real opportunity for targeted strategies and again um, I'd like to see you know, a, a, a coordinated approach. Again, everybody should be um, stepping into that space, but certainly local local council um, can play a role there. And I know I know they are already effectively delivering services um, into those into those older communities. So that'd be fantastic as well. Um, you know, possibly some more coordinated work around a sort of digital skills framework. So that would also be something that could be led nationally. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking about you know what is it the what, what do what are we aiming for here? What are the sort of skills that we need to have? Um, we currently don't really have a model of that. Um, and I guess one of my, my one of the big issues we've seen is a real focus on digital transformation at the government level. Um, you know, um, getting things online it produces efficiencies, it produces innovation. Um, but we ha- haven't seen really the same level of interest and in action um, in dealing with digital inequality. So I'd like to see those two things being treated a bit more hand in hand. Uh, Chris, so Sorry, go ahead, Ro.
0: I'd like to hear what you think as well um, in terms of... Oh, sorry, yeah. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts, uh, which you touched on briefly around digital literacy for both um, the much younger Australians, like your primary school age, but also your older Australians who, as you mentioned before, may have just used, you know, the Gmail or, you know, something along those lines, but they're now on social media, getting right into the email chains, get, you know, possibly even TikToking and creating content. We, we've also seen, um, you know, a rise in spreading of conspiracy theories and, all, all sorts of other great things, which is and and of course um, digital scams. Um, there was a quite highly publicised uh, COVID app, you know, text message one um, that came out. And yeah, very curious to hear um, your thoughts and what you'd like to see happen in terms of the digital literacy piece and and where that fits as um, accessibility increases.
4: Oh yeah, that uh, great question, and um, and and it is a, it is a real issue. I mean. Again, one of the pillars of of getting people online is to ensure that they're they're, they're operating safely online. Um, we know the research says to us that um, particularly older people, um, who, who are, are usually newer users, um, are susceptible to the sort of fake news, um, the, the fake news material that that obviously circulates quite commonly in the social media, um, as well as of course the scams. Um, and, and you know, we have obviously we have some some efforts um, federally around this with the Safety Commission, um, who are providing who do provide and do excellent work in this space in terms of providing the sorts of um, training and information around um, trying to make sure people are you know safe when they when they are online. Um, it will you know it's again requires um, requires a real coordinated approach because. We do want to get people online. There are immense benefits to being online and immense costs to being offline, but we must make it a safe space and we must help people to be able to to navigate safely around the web. So big issue. Um, some resources already in the area, um, but I think, um, you know, again, more needs to be done, especially if we're trying to get another 2.5 million people who aren't users um, into the online space. Um, it could be rolled again through... through targeted work um, at older age groups, but um, also, again, making sure that that's a key part of curriculum um, at, the, at, the, at the sort of um, primary and high school level as well.
2: Chris, I, I would imagine that um, if we're looking at, you know, this in a socioeconomic sta- uh, framework, the people at the lower end of the scale would be more likely to uh, be less digitally literate and digitally connected. Is there a, um, a role for service providers and people who support... People who need it uh, in this space at all?
4: Yes, there is, and and there's excellent work that is being done in that space, and has been done for many years. Um, I'm thinking of groups like Info Exchange, um, uh, who are who who are again highly engaged in that space. Um, we know, again, it is it is it is really. I mean, you know, internet access and telecommunications costs. If you if you think about it, a family household, couple of teenage kids. Um, and you and you project back into your own past a little bit, and you think, well, geez, how much did I used to spend on, on telecommunications? Well, like a home phone, um, you know, then you might have got some dial-up broadband, some dial-up um, internet. And now you're talking about, you know, three or four mobile phone uh, phones in the household, um, internet. Um, you know, you might have a fixed broadband account as well. Um, you start to add all that that up, and, and it's a huge pressure on budgets. So, you know, lots of, you know, it is a real problem for, for low income households. Um, and it was it was it's been heartening to see um MBN's come with a with I think a fifty million dollar package um, as part of COVID to to assist low income households with school aged wow. children to get online. Um, so very important to address that group. Um, and so, and and we know again, safety nets, at local council level, um even even you know, commercial Wi-Fi networks in in shopping centres provide um, a, a really a safety net for for homeless and at risk um, people. So very important that we we continue to address that particular particular group, low income as well as you know those really at risk households and at risk at risk people. Um, some good things happening there, but the problem I think in in the post-COVID world will be how many more people are going to be slipping into those categories with rising unemployment and rising poverty?
2: Absolutely. It's a very important issue and uh, it will only serve to become more important as we are sort of, I suppose, coaxed into doing everything online by virtue of the fact that we are uh, being made to be socially distant. Dr. Chris Wilson of the Centre for Social Impact is who we've been speaking to about the issue of digital literacy. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We could talk for hours about this, but um, yeah, we'd love, really uh, love the work that you're doing.
4: Thank you very much. My pleasure.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au.
1: Ro, Dan, and Warren with you. Uh, International Pop Underground is coming up soon. Uh, We just heard from Grimes, and uh, I think the track was uh, deleted forever. Um, Ro, you do have some Grimes news for us, I believe.
0: We do. I mean, the the online world has been highly entertained with um, Grimes and her partner, Elon Musk, um, having named their newborn baby something rather enthusiastic um, (laughs) to look at. It looks like um, an X, a diphthong, and then an A-12. So um, the crew over at Gizmodo have uh, spent the time and dug into the symbolism of the name a little bit to try to figure out how it could connect Potentially be pronounced. And um, their theory goes like this X is in um, the Greek chi, um, the AE diphthong, which is pronounced ash. And one of the design names for the Lockheed A 12 spy plane, which could be Archangel, Cygnus, or Oxcart. So it's a good chance their kid is actually going to be called Chi Ash Archangel.
3: Oh, wow.
2: wow. Okay. I mean, look, <laughs> I didn't think that the two of them could be more ridiculous. Than they already are. I was proven wrong.
1: I was proven wrong. Um, what well, tell only the, it's only the first as well. So um, plenty more ridiculous to come. Well, this is it, oh. and, I, and I mean, look,
2: it's it, you know, I have a couple of friends now who've kind of changed their baby's name. Maybe six months down the track, um, I wonder whether these guys will do that, or maybe they'll maybe they'll do a Zoe Bowie and change their name under their own steam.
0: And who knows, maybe it's all a massive hoax and their child's called Barry and um, they've just been having a lot of fun at all our expense. Who knows?
2: Oh, look, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest.
1: <laughs> I, I do have a, a, another piece of um, uh, out there news. Um, because we are kind of, I guess, the um, uh, default uh, space um, space tech show as well, I'm bite into it, um, there is a new electric microwave plasma thruster uh, that could rival our traditional jet engines. Um, I've been paying attention to jet engines a, a bit um, this year um, because, uh, well, around emissions and so forth. But this is interesting. It's being tested uh, in China. Um, they've demonstrated a prototype of a microwave plasma thruster. Uh, I just like saying that, actually, it's really fun capable of working in the Earth's atmosphere and producing thrust with an efficiency comparable to the jet engines you'd find on modern airliners uh, under lab conditions. Um, plasma thrusters are already being uh, used on spacecraft um, as a means of uh, solar electric locomotion um, using xenon plasma, which I don't know too much about. Um, but um, this is interesting if we could kind of get this um, into the uh, atmosphere. Um, yeah, uh, jet engines have got a lot of problems.
2: It sounds like we're uh, we're one step closer to warp speed. Hey, guys, it's coming up to 8 o'clock here on Byte Intuit. You've been listening to us on 3RRR with Dan, Warren and Ro. Thank you so much to Toby Tremendous. From Machine Dreams and uh, Dr. Chris Wilson from the Centre for Social Impact for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week.
0: Uh Hi, this is Vanessa Teohaka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.